day, all you horror connoisseurs. You're back listening to the Nasty Pasty podcast, hosted by me, Andy Roberts. You've already got the drill, or the hacksaw, or claw hammer, whichever tool fits your fancy. I scour the wastelands of the VHS age, when many uncensored exploitation and horror movies were passed around in British video shops more often than kids exchanging pennies for gobstoppers. Of course, as we all know, it was not meant to be when the evil megalomaniac government clamped down on the evil horrors, saving us all from the imminent danger we were in and banishing them from society once and for all. Well, not quite. Um, There was no danger, and they certainly weren't banished forever. In a similar way to how Barbara Streisand tried to conceal her new Malibu home from the public and inadvertently caused a frenzied interest in it, the video nasties now live on forever in British culture and as a bizarre page in the history of film across the world. Unfortunately, some of the equally controversial or graphic material that was around at the time didn't get their chance to shine, which is why I'm collating a bunch of them together and reinvigorating that sense of debauchery and nastiness that they ought to have had. Now, last week we were at Australia, so this time we're travelling to another country other than our own. The wonderfully liberal and prosperous Canada. We've got two Canuxploitation slasher flicks for you all today. 1980's Terror Train and 1981's My Bloody Valentine. So before we get stuck right in, let's have a brief glance about what Canuxploitation actually is. In a similar way to Ozploitation, Canuxploitation is a retrospective term coined at the turn of the new millennium to refer to exploitation pictures that were filmed in Canada between 1974 and 1982. For pretty much the same reason as Ozploitation became a thing, the Canadian government wanted to give major incentives to Canadian filmmakers in order to boost the film industry in the country. It did, but in a rather unexpected sense, as multiple American directors, whose work was considered too banal for mainstream tastes, came to Canada and utilised the new 100% capital cost allowance tax credit to effectively film their movies at a drastically reduced cost. While there's no true defining feature of Canuxploitation other than the production backstories, there was a swell of low-budget horror and science fiction films, most notably giving rise to David Cronenberg, Bob Clark, Ivan Reitman and William Fruitt. Some examples of Canuxploitation are Bob Clark's Death Dream, uh, Shivers, Kathy's Curse, Humongous and Spasms. Now, a few of them ended up on the Video Nasties list, like I Miss You Hugs and Kisses, and Visiting Hours, while some were regulated to the Section 3 list, like Death Weekend, Rabid, Prom Night, Happy Birthday to Me, and Scanners. But anyway, now that we know a little bit about it, let's head into our first offering, which is 1980's Terror Train.
At a New Year's frat party, medical student Elena reluctantly participates in a prank orchestrated against the nerdy pledge Kenny. She lures him into a darkened bedroom and entices him into bed, only for Kenny to discover a corpse stolen from the med school morgue inside, causing him a severe trauma. Three years later, the same pledges are celebrating their graduation and the New Year festivities by getting aboard an excursion train. As the teens get aboard the train, Joker Ed is seen with a sword in his stomach, causing the other pledges to laugh at the joke. As they file on the train, it soon becomes apparent that Ed really has been stabbed, the killer stealing his Groucho Marx outfit and dumping the body under the train as it leaves. The killer wanders about the train, everyone believing it to be Ed, including Jackson, who is dressed as a lizard. The killer murders him in a bathroom by slamming his head into a mirror. Elena chastises Doc, who is recounting the prank humorously, as well as her boyfriend Mo for lying about the train being his idea, upset mainly at Doc actually being the real ideas guy. After Doc and Mitchie are entertained by the conductor Carney, and a magician puts on a show for the train's guests, Doc and Mo head off with Ed and Jackson's girlfriends to the irritation of Alana and Mitchie. Carney, meanwhile, discovers Jackson's corpse in the bathroom and rushes to get his assistant Charlie, only for his corpse to be gone when they return, the killer clearly now wearing the lizard's outfit. He meets with Mitchie, who seduces him in a compartment. The killer responds by stroking her with Jackson's severed hand before cutting her throat. Carney discovers her just before Elena arrives and discovers the same thing. During another magic show, Doc and Mo loudly protest against the magician's antics, only for Mo to be inexplicably stabbed to death after the magician teleports to the other end of the carriage. Carney initiates an emergency stop and has his two purses search the train for the killer, where they stumble upon Pet's corpse, the girlfriend of Ed. Elena recounts how she went to see Kenny in the institution and heard he had killed someone, with Doc surmising that they are next. After briefly locking both himself and Elena in a carriage for safety, Doc voices his suspicion for the magician's true identity. Elena leaves Doc alone, unable to allow the others to come to harm, and becoming increasingly suspicious, Doc is suddenly attacked and decapitated by the killer, who has feminine hands. Elena is safeguarded in an empty carriage while Carney tries to calm down the hysterical students. The purser watching over Alana is shown with a sword stuck in his chest, while the killer, wearing Mitchie's witch mask and Doc's monk robe, attacks her in the carriage. Elena manages to stab him in the arm and flees, chased through the train by him and brutally attacked. After seemingly knocking the killer off the train, Elena rests for a while under Carney's instruction before heading out to everyone. Going into the magician's car, she discovers his dead body stuffed into the sword box and rushes to get Carney. Finding Charlie instead, she tries to warn him of what she's found, only for him to seize her hands. Removing a mask, it's revealed that it is in fact the magician's female assistant, who is really Kenny in drag. Elena tries to apologise, but Kenny forces her to kiss him. It drives him mad with fear, bringing back all the memories of the prank, allowing Carney to hit him with a shovel, knocking him out of the train, and flying into a freezing river, stone-cold dead. Very classy. <laughs> you like this one? No, I've always wanted my own toy train. This is ridiculous. Mm. You know, you're very imaginative, Buster. Oh, I have my moments. I know. Hey, Mitch, I may have to marry him after all. Marry me. <laughs> it was my idea. Ah, oh, Doc. I cannot tell a lie. 
I'm sorry, buddy. It got stuck in my throat. I thought you said it was your idea. Look, I know I suggested letting her think otherwise. Well, that's real generous of you. Well, thank you. So you're the one who's paying for all this. Oh, no. Those are one with the bread. I've got all the ideas. For instance, guess what I put in the stuff I gave those dorks? You asshole. You can't have a good time without hurting somebody, can you? Is that why you told me it was your idea? Because I said I'd never go to another one of his fucking parties. Elena, they're always walking out of my parties. But this time, you can't. I'll get you for this one, Doc. I mean it this time. This was a good idea, right? Right? Yeah. So what the hell does it matter? It matters a lot. I'm sorry. I know. I just can't wait for the other surprises he's got planned. Warby cushions, exploding cigars. <laughs> oh, Jesus. What? Somebody broke a bottle in there. Already. I told you it was going to be another one of these stupid... Oh, come on. Give it a chance, will you? Terror Train is one of those slashers that came in the wake of Halloween, and it was in production at about the same time as Friday the 13th, before the whole roller coaster of gore and mayhem had actually hit it off. In that vein, it's very similar to Prom Night, which also starred Jamie Lee Curtis, and it does have a few more connections too, but we'll get to that later. The initial idea for the film came from the producer Daniel Grodnick, who'd woken up from a dream that was a mix of Halloween, but it was set on a train. After mentioning this idea to his wife, she said it was a terrible idea. So he wrote down the words terrible train on a piece of paper, and he worked on a short 22-page draft of a script, eventually retitling it Terror Train and pitching the idea. It was the debut feature of director Roger Spottiswood, who was brought in due to his work as an editor on Sam Peckinpah's films. He was originally meant to edit this film, but another crew member was eventually brought in, while Grodnick was made into an executive producer. The shoot began in November of 1979, with the shoot supposed to take 25 days, but it was stretched to five weeks after a little delay, taking it to the end of December. The first four weeks of the film were dedicated to the film's extensive scenes on board the train, which was depicted by a June 194 Canadian Locomotive Company excursion train, leased to the production team from a steam train museum. The carriages were specially modified to allow the crew to film inside with a special dolly, and they were stationary inside a very cold Quebec warehouse. In order to simulate movement, the carriages were rocked back and forth on a rig, with the cinematographer rewiring the carriage exteriors so that he could dim and control the light very quickly to achieve specific moods. The train smoke during these scenes was achieved using incense and burning charcoal. And during the principal photography, the scenes in the train had to be filmed at night, mainly because the warehouse was open during the day and very hectic with noise, making it impossible to film during daylight. The fifth week of filming was dedicated to the exterior shots of the train and also the opening sequence, which funnily enough was the last scene to be shot, about a month after principal photography had ended. The crew were hoping for some typical snow to fall in Canada to reflect the New Year time period, and with luck, it did in fact snow exactly when they needed it. 
Whilst jokingly attributed to the presence of David Copperfield, it did cause some problems as one of the cameras could not be used as it had become completely frozen. Other problems that hit production was a delay caused by producer Sandy Howard, wanting to take five pages from the script in an effort to make the film's plot a little tighter, causing a day and a half to be lost in total. For me, Terror Train is not particularly standout. Its plot is no different to various other slashes of the time, its stock characters are no better or worse, and the kills are woefully perpetrated off-screen. Any bloodshed is always subsequent in sort of aftermath shots. That's not to say it's necessarily a bad film. I mean, it's competently shot. Jamie Lee Curtis's characters are always a treat to watch. The magic element is interesting, though it does overstay its welcome when an inordinate amount of time is spent watching David Copperfield fanny about. The element of the killer adopting the costumes of the victims that he kills is also an interesting twist to the formula, but it's hard to appreciate when the killer has no real signature kills to back it up. The only real memorable kill for me is Doc's decapitation, which is done off-screen, but the severed head falls from a compartment when Carney goes to investigate. It is fairly understandable, however, as Friday the 13th hadn't quite popularised this gore element, so Terror Train was taking most of its influence from Halloween. And the lack of gore isn't necessarily the problem, Halloween and Prom Night being prime examples that I enjoyed despite the restraint. It's actually that just the setups are a little bit muddled and they're a bit weak, and the characters, with the exception of Elena, are so cardboard that their deserved deaths being off-screen is more of an annoyance. Where it does excel, though, are its tense chase sequences towards the latter end of the film. Elena is terrorised quite effectively by Kenny, and he does deal her quite a vicious, vindictive beating, more than I'd expected, actually, to a final girl. I mean, he tears her earring out, he punches her full force in the stomach, and he throttles her badly before attacking her with a pole. The final scene with Kenny confronting Elena is also very well done, thanks to both Curtis's and McKinnon's performances, and the ingenious reveal that Kenny has actually been the magician's female assistant the whole time. I mean, I actually didn't really see that coming. Jamie Lee Curtis plays the headstrong Elena, bit of a far cry from Laurie Strode, who's a bit more mousy and meek, really. Curtis, of course, had been in the iconic Halloween by John Carpenter, and also appeared in the Section 3 nasty film Prom Night, which she starred in almost back-to-back with Terror Train. Prom Night was shot in Toronto, while Terror Train was shot in Montreal. She also appeared in John Carpenter's The Fog in 1980, making four appearances in horror films in two years. Really, she earned that that Scream Queen moniker. Of course, she graduated from horror, and she shot into superstardom, appearing in Trading Places, A Fish Called Wanda, My Girl, True Lies, Halloween H2O and its sequels, the awful Halloween Resurrection, and the as-yet-unreleased Halloween reboot from John Carpenter again. Now, the asshole Doc was played by Hart Bochner, who'd, apart from appearing in 1984's Supergirl, played most prominently another asshole the big-mouthed Ellis in Die Hard who gets shot by Alan Rickman. Veteran actor Ben Johnson played the conductor Carney, and he prominently appeared in loads of westerns as doubles for people like John Wayne or James Stewart. He reportedly asked the director Roger Spottiswood to reduce his lines, as he felt too much dialogue would just be too detrimental, and he also accepted the role without even reading the script, due to his respect for Spottiswood's work on 1972's The Getaway. It's odd, really, because I thought Carney was pretty weak as a character. I mean, he waffled a little bit too much for me. And he was quite muted in his reaction to several corpses being found on his train. 
Kenny was played by Canadian actor Derek McKinnon, who only really portrayed transvestites and drag queens, as I assume that was actually his real profession. Apparently, he didn't show up for shooting on time and was a bit lackadaisical in terms of punctuality, but Spotterswood conceded that he did a good job on the picture regardless. Sandy Curry, who played Mitchie, would later appear in the slasher film Curtains, while Timothy Weber, who played Moe, frequently showed up in US TV programmes like The X-Files, Stargate SG-1, and the recent Netflix show A Series of Unfortunate Events, and he even has a voice role on War for the Planet of the Apes. Joy Boschel, who plays the scatty pet, she'd crop up in David Cronenberg's The Fly, as well as Look Who's Talking, while the magician was played by famous illusionist David Copperfield, who was quite reluctant to show his magic tricks on camera in case of any detection. He was quite successful, however, and he does manage to pull some impressive tricks. I just wish that the scenes didn't last for so long. Director Roger Spottiswood, as mentioned before, was actually an editor before he got into directing, working in that capacity on Sam Peckinpah's Straw Dogs, uh, The Getaway, The Gambler, and also Hard Times. Terror Train was his first directorial debut, but the film was originally offered to Prom Night director Paul Lynch, but he declined, presumably just because Prom Night was only finished mere months before Terror Train was due to start. Spottiswood went on to direct a number of some recognisable titles in his career, such as Turner and Hooch, uh, Stop or My Mum Will Shoot, Tomorrow Never Dies, and also the sci-fi movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger, The Sixth Day. Producer Daniel Grodnick had previously produced the proto-predator sci-fi film Without Warning in 1980, and he'd also go on to National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation in 1989. Another recognisable producer on the film was Don Commodi, who started off on exploitation pictures like Death Weekend, Shivers and Rabid, but he graduated onto some rather big American productions, like Porky's and its sequel, Porky's 2, uh, The Whole Nine Yards, Get Carter, Battlefield Earth, Wrong Turn, Resident Evil Apocalypse, Lucky Number Slevin, uh, Silent Hill, Orphan, Resident Evil Afterlife, Resident Evil Retribution, and also Silent Hill Revelation. Other producer Harold Greenberg also worked on the 1980 horror film Death Ship, as well as Porky's and Porky's 2. The music score was composed by John Mills Cockle, who'd later work on 1982's Humongous. And the cinematographer John Alcott was a Stanley Kubrick protégé, who'd worked on A Clockwork Orange and The Shining before getting the job on Terror Train, whilst the special effects in the film were done by Joe Elsner from David Cronenberg's Rabbit. The special makeup was done by Alan Friedman, whose first film was the 1976 K9 horror Dogs, and he'd move on from horror fairly quickly after Terror Train, and he ended up working on A Night at the Roxbury, a Clueless, The Brady Bunch movie, and also Dracula, Dead and Loving It. The film was released in 1980 by 20th Century Fox, rather oddly as this would be their only dabble in the slashes during the golden era. The advertisement campaigns featured quite heavily the killer wearing Ed's Groucho Marx mask, brandishing a knife. Now, Groucho Marx, of course, was one of the Marx Brothers, a group of comedians who achieved prominence from the beginning of the 20th century into the late 40s. It did have some different titles, though, depending on where it was released. In Portugal, it was known as Return of the Train of Terror, while in Germany it was called Monster on the Night Express Train. In Greece, it was Slaughter on the Train of Death, but to America and the UK, it was released as Terror Train. It grossed $8 million at the US box office, recouping its $4 million budget almost twice over. 
and it was rather successful in the UK cinemas too, where it released in late September with no cuts applied to it. It was rather unique, however, in terms that I've not really encountered this so far, in that a VHS version was not released in either the UK or the US until very late in the 80s, specifically 1988 in America and 1989 in the UK. In both instances, the film was uncut, presumably because there's not much violence to cut out anyway, but the lateness to the party meant that the DPP probably weren't even aware of the film at all. And perhaps the fact that it was 20th Century Fox who had the rights to it meant that the release was delayed. Because of the swell of distributors that were putting their material onto the UK market, the big companies in America were reluctant to adjust to the new medium, and they had comparatively small libraries on the VHS market. The film, though, is now available on DVD and Blu-ray in various regions. So there we have it. That was Terror Train. So let's not waste no time in delving into our next gory treat, My Bloody Valentine. Sad in a place known as Hanigermine. A legend began every woman and man would always remember the time. And those who remained were never the same. You could see the fear in their eyes. Once every year, as the 14th draws near, there's a hush. All over the town For the legend they say On a Valentine's Day Is a curse that'll live on and on And no one will know As the years come and go Of the horror from long time ago Twenty years came and went And everyone spent the 14th in quiet regret And those still alive Know the secret survives In the darkness that looms in the night For the legend they say On a Valentine's Day Is a curse that'll live on and on And no one will know As the years come and go Of the horror from long time ago this little town, when the 14th comes round, there's a silence and fear in the air. Remember the morn that the legend was born, all the shock and the horror was there. For the legend they say on a Valentine's Day is a curse that'll live on and on, and no one will know as the years come and go. Of the horror from long time ago And no one will know As the years come and go Of the horror from long time ago Inside a mine, a female miner is murdered by her masked co-worker who pushes her onto a mining pick after she strips for him. In the town nearby, Valentine Bluffs, a group of teenagers are excited about the upcoming Valentine's Day dance, and they help to prepare the festivities. 
TJ, the mayor's son, has recently returned to the town after a time away to find his previous girlfriend, Sarah, has begun a relationship with his friend Axel due to the sudden nature of TJ's departure. Meanwhile, Mayor Hanniger and the town's police chief, Newby, receive a Valentine's gift containing a human heart and a note threatening murder if the dance goes ahead, reminding them of the story of Harry Warden, the sole survivor of a mining accident that occurred during the dance 20 years ago. Warden had to resort to cannibalism to survive the accident and subsequently upon his rescue went on a killing spree, murdering the mine's supervisors and threatening the same if the dance was to ever occur again. That night, one of the dance's organisers, Mabel, is murdered in the laundromat, with a horrendously burnt corpse tumbling out of a dryer when Newby investigates. Covering up the murder as natural causes, the mayor cancels the dance and locks the hall up, while Newby tracks Warden's latest movements from the institution in which he was hospitalised. The teenagers, however, decide to make plans for a secret Valentine's party instead, irritating a bartender called Happy, who warns them of Harry Warden's legend. For a prank, he decides to set up a fake miner to scare them, only for the real miner to turn up, slamming a pickaxe through his chin, popping one of his eyes out. Later that night, teenagers TJ, Axel, Sarah, Mike, Harriet, Hollis, Patty, Dave, Gretchen, John and Howard instigate their Valentine's party at the offices of the mines. The killer ambushes Dave in the kitchen and drowns him in a pot of boiling water, while John and Sylvia fool around in the shower room. Mike, Harriet, Hollis, Howard, Sarah and Patty decide to descend into the mines after Axel and TJ have a confrontation at the party. Sylvia is cornered by the killer and impaled on a shower head. John soon discovers this, while Gretchen discovers Dave's corpse in the kitchen, causing both Axel and TJ to go into the mines hoping to rescue the teens from the danger. Newby arrives shortly afterwards and phones for police support. Down in the mines, Hollis encounters Mike and Harriet's dead bodies, impaled with a large drill bit. As he turns to leave, the killer attacks, firing nails into his head with a nail gun. Sarah, Patty and Howard come across this, scaring Howard into fleeing without the girls. Axel and TJ soon meet up with the women, but they're disturbed by the sight of Howard's corpse hung up in a mine shaft, which suddenly drops, his head having been severed. Trying in vain to find a way out, Axel accidentally falls into a deep pit of water, whilst Patty is ambushed around the corner by the miner, who stabs her in the stomach with a pickaxe. With TJ and Sarah the only ones left, the killer gets into a fight with TJ, and is ultimately revealed to be Axel, who is the son of one of the supervisors murdered by Harry Warden, the murder witnessed by him as a small child. The mine suddenly caves in, trapping Axel inside and allowing Newby and the backup to reunite with TJ and Sarah, revealing that Harry Warden had in fact passed away five years ago. A still-alive Axel, however, completely insane, severs his arm in order to escape from the debris and runs off into the mines, mumbling incoherently about returning and laughing maniacally about Harry Warden. You know what I'm talking about? I'm telling you now. This town is accursed. Started 20 years ago. It was the night of the Valentine's Day dance, the Union Hall. The biggest event of the year. There'd been a tradition for over a hundred years. Everybody was there except for seven miners who were out at the Hanager Mine. Five of them still down below. Two supervisors were waiting for the men to come up. 
Anxious to get to the party, they left before the men were safely out. Failing to check the methane gas levels in the tunnels down below. Five men were buried alive as the town continued its party. <laughs> For six weeks, we dug around the clock to try to save them. After we broke through, one man was found alive. I was the one who found <laughs> Harry Warden spent the next year in the state mental hospital. Exactly one year later, on Valentine's Day, he came back to town. He killed the two supervisors who had left the post the year before. Then he cut out their hearts and stuffed them into heart-shaped candy boxes. That night at the dance, he found the boxes, blood dripping out the sides. Inside was a note, a warning from Harry never to hold a Valentine's dance ever again. Every February 14th, Harry comes back to town. His pickaxe stained with blood, waiting in the shadows of the Henniger mine just for someone to kill, should they not heed his warning. One of my personal favourites, My Bloody Valentine was released smack dab in the middle of the golden era of slashes. It also utilises that theme of slashes set on holidays, as it's focused on Valentine's Day, although it is also unusually linked with mines as well. Almost like Harry Warden from the movie, the film has attained an almost legendary status, due to the extensive cuts that the film suffered upon its original release, and still suffered for almost 30 years. The film came about from producers Andre Link and John Dunning, who brainstormed about which holiday had not been covered yet by a slasher film. By 1981, Halloween was covered by the eponymous John Carpenter film, Christmas was covered by Bob Clark's Black Christmas and Lewis Jackson's Christmas Evil, you had Herb Freed's Graduation Day, Paul Lynch's Prom Night, Charles Kaufman's Mother's Day, and also Nettie Pena's Home Sweet Home, which covered Thanksgiving. Valentine's Day, though, was rather untouched, so they penned their script with that holiday in mind, under the title The Secret, in order to keep the idea from being imitated. The filming location was chosen to be a mine, so the production team scouted out potential locations, and eventually settled on Sydney Mines, which was a small coal mining settlement in Nova Scotia. The crew felt the natural ambience and the remote location was suitably creepy for just such a picture, and they chose the mine, which was known as the Princess Colliery Mine. The townspeople were rather excited about having a film crew in their town, and they refurbished the mines to make them appear more suitable, as they were closing down anyway due to the economic troubles of the owners, Sydney Steel Corporation. This unfortunately had the opposite effect of what the film crew wanted, so around $30,000 had to be used from the film's budget to darken the mines and make them seem more malevolent. Despite their effectively creepy atmosphere, filming in the mines was considered horrendous and troublesome by the crew, due to the countless safety procedures. Because the mines were real, they delved around 2,700 feet underground, only accessible via an elevator that had limited space, meaning it took around an hour to have the entire crew and actors on set. 
Due to the natural methane gases present in the mine too, caution had to be exercised in regards to how many light bulbs could be used for lighting the set. Too many had the danger of igniting the pockets of gas and causing a fatal disaster. The town itself that stood for Valentine Bluffs, Sydney Mines, is still relatively intact today, as well as all the company houses still standing, and the mine now converted to a museum. It was hoped that the filming of My Bloody Valentine would introduce a tourism interest in the region, but it wouldn't really grow until many decades later when the cult status had been instated properly. Whilst heavily cut initially, which we'll cover in a short while, the gore effects in the film were done by Thomas R. Berman, whose graphic creations disturbed more than a few. One of his dummy corpses was dispatched from America to Canada and caused the Canadian customs great concern. The strength of the gore was so profound that it actually caused director George Mihalka to legitimately vomit at the sight of them, while the facial aftermath of Dave's face boiling caused the other crew members to steer clear of actor Carl Marot whilst they were on lunch. The soundtrack by Paul Zarzar was specifically composed to elicit a different response from each killing, as well as a dripping, echoey effect for the atmospheric shots, to hearken to the desolate, empty nature of the mines. The end credits song, entitled The Ballad of Harry Warden, was written to exploit a potential vinyl release after the film was completed. But unfortunately, the film's budget had been depleted by the time recording had to happen, so it was written rather quickly, and the singer also went uncredited, which was actually a Canadian singer, John McDermott. In terms of the script, the cast were kept in the dark about the true nature of the film's killer, and actor Neil Affleck, who ultimately played the killer, Axel, only guessed that it was him when he was sent to be fitted for a prosthetic arm. He'd noticed in the film's climax that the killer has an arm ripped off. Since he enjoyed the production, he actually kept the miner's helmet that Axel wears in the film, and he still has it to this day. Now, I was relatively lucky with this film, as the first time I saw it, I tracked down the uncut version from the US, so I've not actually seen the theatrical cut that was actually the only version around for many years. From my own experience, My Bloody Valentine is a massive cut above almost every other slasher. Its gore effects are extremely impressive and well done. They're peppered enough through the film to satisfy the most relentless of gorehounds too. Its characters are not as archetypal as most in this genre, and they actually have some rather likeable qualities. You do have some fodder, of course, but the main characters of TJ, Axel and Sarah all have their own distinctive traits, especially enhanced by the love triangle thing that they have going on. Sarah's character, played very well by Laurie Hallier, is particularly notable for being quite sexually liberated and independent, almost in a similar vein to Caitlin O'Heaney's character Shirley from our very first episode of Nasty Pasty in Savage Weekend. She makes the decision to abandon her feelings for TJ when he leaves town all of a sudden and strikes up a relationship with Axel. When TJ returns, she is clearly torn, but she has the respect to Axel to remain faithful to him, even with TJ's emotive insistence that he wants her. It's rare to see such a headstrong female character in a slasher film, especially in the final girl model, who's usually depicted as quite sexless, or at least too meek to engage in sex. Axel too is particularly interesting, as he's consumed by hate when Sarah appears to struggle with her feelings towards TJ, and he reacts by invoking the town's legend of Harry Warden and using it to cover up his vengeance. In essence, then, he's worse than Warden, who murdered in revenge for his co-workers being killed due to his supervisor's gross negligence, while Axel kills simply out of spite for his bloody valentine potentially being swayed to another man, without any thought whatsoever to how Sarah has actually made her staunch decision to stay with him. 
It's rather fitting that Axel is trapped in the mine by the end, completely demented and vowing to return. In a poetic sense, similar to the conclusion of Bernard Rose's Candyman, Axel has now become the new legend that haunts Valentine Bluffs, the new Harry Warden, if you will. In another great twist to the film, the legend of Harry Warden, an extremely grisly and well-written piece of script, is actually a giant red herring, which I did not see coming at all. The legend of a killer is nothing new to slashers, but in this iteration the legend is so well written and unique that I was really shocked when it actually turned out that Harry Warden actually had nothing to do with the killings. Another great minor element to the writing that eagle-eyed viewers will notice is that the opening indicates that it's the 12th of February, a Thursday, and the Valentine's Dance is on the Saturday, which is February 14th. This means that the day in between is Friday the 13th. Probably a cheeky in-joke at the fact that Paramount Pictures distributed the film. Now, TJ was played by British actor Paul Kelman, who only really reappeared in 1981's Gas or Black Roses in 1988. Laurie Hallier, who played Sarah, went on to star in a huge array of American TV shows, like The Dukes of Hazard, uh, The Twilight Zone, Friday the 13th the series, Robocop the series, and she even had a small appearance in Thomas and the Magic Railroad in 2000. Neil Affleck, who played Axel, he made some small appearances in some other exploitation films, like the video nasty Visiting Hours, and also David Cronenberg's Scanners. His main career, however, has actually been working as an animator and a storyboard artist on The Simpsons, Family Guy, and also King of the Hill. Alf Humphreys, who played Howard, cropped up in First Blood. Uh, he also appears in Final Destination 2 and also X-Men 2, while Thomas Kovacs, the character of Mike, had a small uncredited role in Scanners. Carl Marot, who played Dave, he later appeared in 2006's Skinwalkers, and he also appeared as a stunt performer in George Romero's Land of the Dead. The drunk bartender, as well, he was played by Jack Van Avera, who actually had a small role in Bob Clark's Black Christmas. Director George Mahalka was approached to direct My Bloody Valentine based on the strength of his earlier movie Pick Up Summer. His horror career didn't last very long, with only the 1988 thriller Hostile Takeover fulfilling this capacity, but he did continue to work quite prominently in Canadian TV. Writer Stephen Miller returned on the 2009 remake of My Bloody Valentine, whilst fellow writer John Bird also joined him, as well as worked on the other conexploitative slasher, Happy Birthday to Me. Producers John Dunning and Andre Link, they were David Cronenberg's producers of choice, who were huge players in Canada at the time, working on Shivers, Rabid, Death Weekend, Happy Birthday to Me, and they also returned on the 2009 My Bloody Valentine remake. Other producer, Larry Nesis, he worked on 1980's Death Ship, Happy Birthday to Me, and he'd also go on to work on David Cronenberg's body horror movie, Videodrome. Now, the music was done by Paul Zaza, as previously mentioned. Now, he'd worked on Paul Lynch's Prom Night, as well as its three sequels, uh, the slasher film Curtains, um, American Nightmare, The Brain, and Baby Geniuses 1 and 2. The cinematography was done by crew member Rodney Gibbons, who had a rather small filmography that did include The Amityville Curse and Scanners 2, The New Order. Now, interestingly, one of the assistant directors on this film was Ray Sager, and he was the producer of the Prom Night films with the exception of Paul Lynch's original, as well as the horror movie American Nightmare. 
The special effects, as mentioned before, were done by Thomas Berman, who has quite a whopping filmography filled with recognisable projects. I can't name them all, but I will throw a few out here. There's The Goonies, Brian De Palma's Body Double, Frogs, The Godfather Part 3, uh, Happy Birthday to Me, The Exterminator, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch... Uh, Teen Wolf, The Bodyguard, uh, Heaven's Gate, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the Donald Sutherland version, Die Hard 2, Con Air, Wayne's World, and Last Action Hero. The other makeup artist, Ken Diaz, has an equally eye-catching filmography that includes Heaven's Gate, John Carpenter's The Thing, Fright Night, 1996's Jack, um, Anaconda, Wild Wild West, The Perfect Storm, several Pirates of the Caribbean films, uh, The Men Who Stare at Goats, The Expendables, Oz the Great and Powerful, Allegiant, Logan, and most recently, Black Panther, which I'm actually a really huge fan of. Louise Mignot was the assistant special effects girl, and she'd done some uncredited work on Terror Train, funnily enough, as well as Humongous, uh, 2003's Gothica, and also Death Race. Now, really, for the bad stuff. Whilst My Bloody Valentine did modestly well at the box office, grossing £5.6 on a £2.3 budget, Paramount considered the film a flop due to its rather low return compared with its other ilk, so much so that George Mahalka's idea for a sequel in 2001 was outright denied. The film has since gone on, though, to achieve cult status, having a massive fan base that includes auteur-director Quentin Tarantino, who named it his all-time favourite slasher film. Now, part of the reason why it has attained such an iconic status probably has to do with the disgraceful treatment that the film received by the MPAA, who sliced nine minutes of footage for its original theatrical cut. Now, some of this has been subsequently found to have been expository footage and dialogue, but a sizeable chunk of it was around four minutes of violence. No wonder the film didn't perform as well. The film was rendered virtually bloodless by the time it arrived at the flicks, which for 1981 would have been kind of unacceptable. My Bloody Valentine was an unfortunate victim, along with its contemporaries Friday the 13th Part 2 and Happy Birthday to Me, which suffered heavy cuts from the MPAA in the wake of the death of John Lennon. It's been suggested that violence had become less socially acceptable in the wake of John Lennon's death, but in this case, it was much more likely to have been Paramount who ordered the cuts, afraid of criticism that they did get with Friday the 13th's original release. It was given an X rating multiple times, even after director George Mahalka reduced the impact of the violent himself. So the MPAA secured an R rating by basically hacking every scene of bloodshed. You have to remember that Friday the 13th actually made Paramount a hell of a lot of money. So cutting the violence out of My Bloody Valentine was the equivalent of firing into their own legs with a machine gun. Especially annoying is the fact that they bemoaned its relatively average box office takings, as if it wasn't actually their own fault. The opening pickaxe murder was shortened to exclude any blood, uh, Mabel's heavily charred body was visible for only a brief microsecond, Happy's pickaxe death was deleted almost entirely, the flashback of Harry Warden eating an arm and removing a heart was removed, Dave's drowning had the scalding effects removed, Sylvia's impalement was removed, Harriet and Mike's death showed only the aftermath. Hollis's head being nailed was heavily reduced. Howard's death had the decapitation removed, making it seem like he's just been hung. Patty's death was shortened of all visible blood. Um, Axel's arm being hacked off was removed too. 
For almost 30 years, this extremely truncated version of the film was the only version available, both in the US and the UK. Although the UK cinema print did have a slightly altered ending, which did show Axel's severed arm being cut off. In late 1981, CIC released this heavily cut version on VHS in the UK, smack dab in the middle of the Ferrari. Even if the cover had attracted attention, however, the relatively plasma-free scenes in the film would ensure no controversy from the DPP. Miraculously, in 2009, when Lionsgate acquired the rights for the film due to them helming the remake, a special edition of the film was released with three minutes of the previously removed gory footage reinstated. The deaths in the film are now gloriously enjoyable with a style and panache that the film had previously lacked. Having said that, the film is strong enough, certainly story-wise, to survive as long as it did, with the cuts intact. But the gore-hound in me just can't bear to watch it without the violence now. Unfortunately, a casualty of the cuts, even today, is footage of Harriet and Mike's death by impalement with the drill bit, which was actually filmed, but it's now thought to be lost forever. This version 2 is also only available in Region 1, so we in the UK still have the butchered print, which was passed without further cuts at Certificate 15. Still, we do count our blessings that the uncut version was allowed to surface at all, and stories like this do make me hopeful for all sorts of uncut horrors that might be released one day, that still today remain censored. Friday the 13th series, I'm looking at you. For this reason, the film does have warm, fond memories for me, and it is one of my all-time favourites. And that was My Bloody Valentine, and it's the end of this week's Splattered Slaughter Fest. So, thanks to all you've been listening. I hope you enjoyed hearing about these films as much as I had covering them. Now, if you've got any thoughts on these beauties, or just about the show in general, hit me up on Twitter or Facebook, and just search for Nasty Pasty Podcast, and I'll pop up. Or you can email me if you wish to nastypastypodcast at gmail.com. I'm afraid to inform you, though, that our oven is conked out with baking up so many pasties for you all. Well, not really, but there will be no episode next week as I'm on holiday in Poland, so you do have a week's respite from my heinous voice. I can hear the collective sighs of relief already. Fortunately, I'll be back on Friday the 13th. Ooh! Not to mercilessly kill teenagers, but to instead disperse a fresh batch of films. So on the next episode, I'm covering a genre that will certainly not to be everyone's taste, though it did have a few entries on the nasties list. We're covering Mondo films next week, so for those who don't know what they are, they're basically faux-style documentaries which show exotic and primitive cultures in all their glory. But like the journalists of Cannibal Holocaust, a lot of the footage is staged, outright fabricated, or is just a mixture of real footage combined with stock footage. 
Animal lovers, though, should beware, however, as like its cannibalistic cousins, Mondo films are known for their poor treatment of animals, and I know that some of our listeners, understandably, don't really want to see that sort of thing. You should also be aware that sometimes in these films there actually may be real stock footage of corpses or deaths too. So if this is a step too far for you, don't watch them. The two films we're covering though are the infamous Mondo Carni, which arguably kicked off the entire genre, and the later entry, Savage Man, Savage Beast. There'll be more details when I return, but for now, thank you very much for listening, and I'll be speaking in your ear canals in a short bit. Sayonara! Sayonara! <laughs>